Well, let's take the Word of God this evening and turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12 here, we are dealing with the chapter where the Passover was first instituted. Uh, It was um, first commanded from God to Moses, then from Moses to the children of Israel. Uh, It was implemented by the children of Israel. Uh, In this chapter, um, the death angel is going to pass and all the firstborn of those who dwelt in houses where the blood was not applied are going to die. It's going to be in this chapter then that we're going to see uh, the children of Israel being commanded to leave. So there's a lot going on in this chapter. And uh, we're going to continue in our study of this chapter. And so Exodus chapter 12, and uh, we're going to um, begin reading in verse 21. So let's uh, stand together for the reading of God's Word. And uh, as you stand here, as we begin this chapter, in the first ten verses, as we think about the Passover, leading up to the Passover, the emphasis has been on the lamb. Uh, Remember, he says, choose out a lamb, uh, then it's going to be your lamb, and then, uh, or uh, a lamb, the lamb, and then your lamb. Uh, and it's interesting that the word lamb is never found in the plural. He doesn't say, take you all lambs. He says, take you a lamb, the lamb, your lamb. And, uh, and so that month, Abib, which is going to change to become the first month for the Jews, um, they are to, on the tenth day, pick a lamb. Uh, for uh, five days, keep it. On the fourteenth day, they, they are to, on the night, on the evening, they are to slay the lamb. And then that night, they're going to eat the lamb with unleavened bread. And then begins, after the slaying of the lamb, a seven-day period of, called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we, uh, so before the Passover is the emphasis on the lamb. The Passover, the lamb is slain. And then there is seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread of unleavened bread from the evening of the 14th to the 21st day of the month. And so we spent some time looking at that and talked about the importance of unleavened bread. And now we come to verse 21. The Bible says, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, And dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel, and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door, and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when ye come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as ye hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? 
that ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, and when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. I want to bring your attention to verse 24. We've already read in the first part of the chapter, God telling Moses, this is what you're going to tell him to do. Now, we don't have, there's not a word for a repetition of the first part, but there's the instruction from Moses to the people. But there's something that is added in here, verse 24. Ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance, notice, to thee and to thy sons forever. To thee and to thy sons. As we think about the Passover, uh, I want us to think here, it's based on the verse, is to thee, to that generation, and to their sons, notice forever, not just the generation that was presently alive, but to their sons, and to their sons' sons, and to the, and it goes on and on forever. I want us to think, there is going to be no other night like this night, in the sense that the Passover would only happen once. When they're going to observe the feast of the Passover, they're not going to every time strike blood on the doorpost. That's only going to happen once. And so it is with Christ. Uh, there is no need for Him to be offered as a sacrifice and for the blood to be applied again and again with regards to deliverance from the bondage of sin. Uh, but we see here that He is going to institute the Passover not just for this generation, but for the generations to come. And so the title of the message this evening is To Thee and to Thy Sons. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this evening for Your Word. And as we read it, might we understand it. Uh, Lord, help us to see the importance of what this uh, passage communicates. And the challenge, Lord, is always to not just understand it, uh, but also to see how it applies to us today. And so give us understanding, give uh, me clarity of thought and speech, uh, so that you may be honored and glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So now we come to the part of the Passover where the Passover is to be implemented. We're going to see here that the Passover is going to be uh, implemented. And then uh, Moses is going to give the instruction as we look in the passage for the ones to whom he is speaking that this is not going to be uh, just uh, observed in their lifetime, but it's something that is to go beyond their generation and even their children's generations. And I want to spend some time talking about the importance of uh, passing what we receive from God to the next generation. There's clearly here an emphasis in this chapter on this particular truth. As Moses repeats that to the children of Israel. And by the way, you read through after this the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And you find that repeated again and again. That the responsibility of the uh, parents who've received things from God is to pass those things along to their children. 
I think there, there might be a danger where if we experience things in our lives, we may have the idea, well, I'm not going to teach my children. Uh, they should experience God for themselves. That is not always what God has designed. Uh, God often may awaken us and get a hold of us and may bring about uh, things in our lives that we, He will not bring it out about in the lives of our children. And that's why He requires us to teach our children. And so we're going to look at the importance of that and and then we're going to see at the reaction or the response of the children of Israel when they hear the words of Moses. As we look at our passage here, I'm going to go right into uh, the, the, the outline as we look through the text. I want us to see, notice, first of all, the, we find the implementation of the Passover. So the first part is God speaking to Moses and Aaron and say, This is what you need to tell the children of Israel. Uh, notice verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying. And so the children of Israel have not received this message. This message is going to be communicated through Aaron and Moses. And we see here that they're going to gather the elders of Israel. There was a structure. Uh, God spoke to Moses and Aaron, and then Aaron gave that to the elders, and then the elders would pass it along to uh, the, rem- the, the remainder of the children of Israel. And in the implementation, some things are repeated, but, but we find some things that are also new. Uh, in the sense that uh, Moses here, I don't believe, is adding to the Word of God I believe that we may not necessarily have all the details that God gave to Moses and Aaron, but now He communicates those things uh, to the children of Israel. Notice verse 21, Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families, and kill the Passover, and ye shall take a bunch of hyssop. We haven't seen that yet. And dip it in the blood that is in the basin. We haven't talked about the basin yet. And strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Now, I want to here look at the implementation of the Passover when Moses gets to the part where he knows what God has commanded. And now Moses is going to tell them how to implement the Passover. I want to bring your attention to really two themes in the implementation, or two points of emphasis. The first one is the lamb. And if you notice in verse 21, he says this, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families. Now we've already seen the instruction. We already know the timing of when the lamb is supposed to be picked. We know the timing of when the lamb is to be slain. No doubt Moses is going to express those details, but here God gives us this, that he didn't, uh, that God's word gives us this detail that is not given when God tells Moses. And he tells us here, notice, that the lamb, according to your families, and notice he says, and kill the Passover. Now I want us to think about that expression and say, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, we might have thought up to this point that the Passover is that, um, is that the, the angel passes over the house. Uh, but the idea of the Passover here, when we think about what is the central focus of the Passover, 
It is not the death angel passing over, as we might think. The emphasis of the Passover is the Lamb. The Lamb. Notice here he brings them together. He says, you need to kill the Passover. Who is the Passover in the text here? It is the Lamb. Uh, The Lamb that the children of Israel are going to take, uh, set apart, and slay at the doorstep of the house. And so notice here, killing the Passover, we know, uh, the Bible says that Christ is our Passover. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so, uh, when we look at uh, Jesus Christ, and the fact that uh, we will not face the wrath of God, it is because Christ is our Passover, because Christ was killed. He is our Passover. And so there's an emphasis, and I I did uh, two weeks ago a whole message on the details of the Lamb. There's details given to us. And so if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it, because I'm not going to repeat that now. But let me go on to the emphasis on the blood in verse 22. And there's details here in verse 22 that have not been given to us yet. The Bible says, And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel of the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. So first we find the lamb, now we look at the blood, so the assumption is after the Passover has been killed, the lamb has been slain, now we bring our attention to the blood. And when we think about the blood, uh, there are items that we consider that have not been mentioned yet. The the first one is the hyssop. I'll, I'll talk about what that is. Then we have the basin. And then we have um, the lintel. We, we talked about the doorpost, but the lintel hasn't been mentioned yet. As far as my memory serves me right, uh, I don't think I, I uh, forgot that. Uh, but I want you to notice, first of all, the, the, the hyssop. Notice the Bible says here, take a bunch of hyssop. Now the word bunch here does not mean many or a large quantity. Rather, it means a bundle or a knot, uh, a bunch. So it's not many in number, but it would be a bundle of it. Uh, and so uh, a bunch of hyssop. Now what is hyssop? Now, why the emphasis on the hyssop? As we study the Word of God, we're going to find that hyssop is going to be mentioned quite a bit later on. We mentioned this morning when uh, David prayed his prayer of confession in Psalm 51 verse 7. He said this, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, And so what is he talking about when he's talking about the hyssop? I I believe here when we think about the hyssop is that the hyssop is the instrument used, the instrument used for the application of the blood. So the hyssop is the instrument that is used for the application of the blood. What is hyssop? What is that? Well, it's not soap, all right? Hyssop was a small plant with stiff branches and it had a hairy-like leaf which would make it a good brush to apply the blood with. Uh, The word is used repeatedly later on in connection when offerings are being offered. Uh, It was repeatedly used to make, in every single case, application of the blood. 
And this is not just true of this particular sacrifice. It is true of different sacrifices that they are to grab a bunch of hyssop and use the hyssop as the instrument with, wherewith the blood is to be applied. No, Now when David in Psalm 51 verse 7 says, Purge me with hyssop, David is implying by his reference to hyssop that the sacrificial blood had to be applied to him. Purge me with hyssop. Cover me with blood. Because you would not make a reference to hyssop without the assumption that it is the instrument that is used to apply the blood. Now, when we think about uh, hyssop, it's, there's a reference in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 33, that uh, speaks of the trees in Lebanon. The Bible says, and he spake of trees, 1 Kings 4.33, and he spake of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. Now, the reference here is made basically to a range of trees. Uh, between the cedar and the hyssop, the cedar trees were common in Lebanon, uh, north of uh, Judah. The cedar was the tallest and the largest tree that you could find there. On the other hand, the hyssop, which grew around Jerusalem, is the lowest and the least of all the trees. So when 1 Kings 4.33 makes the mention here that every tree found in, the, in that part of the world would fit in between the greatest of them, which is the cedar, and the least of them, which is the hyssop. So why use the hyssop, it is the least of the branches. The instrument used for the application of the blood is, uh, I believe, portrays humility. They're using the lowest, meaningless brush that can be found in that part of the world. And it is with that instrument that they are to apply the blood to the doorpost. They're not to find the majestic cedars and get the nice big branches and uh, talk about the glory and the majesty, but the instrument where the blood is applied is an instrument of humility. And by the way, when we think about Jesus Christ Himself, uh, the Bible says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's interesting as we look at the references throughout the Old and the New Testament, when we think about the blood, and the Passover, and the sacrifice, and the Lamb, it is always the most humble of items, the most humble of places that it is found. The Bible describes Jesus Christ as being a root out of dry ground. As being rejected and despised of men. When Jesus Christ came, He came Humbly, He didn't come in majesty. He came in humility. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. And so we see a reference here to the hyssop, which is the instrument used for the application of the blood. But then we see here that the hyssop is to be dipped in the blood that is in the basin. 
and strike the lintel of the uh, of the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. So notice here, there is a clear emphasis twice on the basin. Now, why would there be a reference here to the basin? We know that, uh, that they would uh, get the lamb. The lamb would be brought to the doorstep of their houses. And then the, excuse the, the details here, but they would cut the throat of the lamb. The blood would pour out. But understand that the blood is not to just pour out on the ground. The blood is to be captured in the basin. Notice, he says, the details are important. He says, first of all, you need to dip the hyssop in the blood. What blood? The blood that is in the basin. And then he says, and when you strike the lintel and the side posts, make sure that you use the blood that is in the basin. So while the hyssop is the instrument used for the application of the blood, the vessel is used for the collection of the blood. You see, the blood was to be received in a basin, which basically was a vessel, you could call it a bowl today, to hold the blood. Now, now why not gather, if you think about it, why not gather the blood that spills on the ground and simply apply it to the doorpost? Uh, you uh, would see here as they would uh, uh, cut the lamb open and the blood would spill out, there would probably be enough blood for you to dip the hyssop from the blood that falls on the ground and then to uh, uh, use the, uh, to strike the, the lintel and then the, the doorpost, there would be sufficient blood to do that. So why uh, use the basin to capture the blood? The assumption, there is no uh, reference that says capture uh, the blood, but we understand that there is no way if the blood falls on the ground that you're going to be able to pick it up and put it in a basin. So the assumption here is that when they're going to slay the lamb on the night of the Passover is that they have to capture the blood underneath and not allow the blood to fall to the ground. Now why such a reference? I think we can make here an assumption, although it is not clearly stated here, but it is, I believe, representative of the preciousness of the blood of the lamb. You see, the blood was not to be spilled on the ground. Uh, the blood, if you think about it, when the lamb was, was cut open and the blood was spilled out, uh, it would be on the doorstep of the houses. And to think here that this blood was so meaningless that they would go in and out of that house again and again and again, and they would be trampling the blood that had spilled out on the doorstep. And so they are to be very careful. Why? Because this is not just any blood. This is the same blood that they are to apply on the doorpost. And God didn't say, if I see blood on the doorstep, He says, if I see blood on the lintel in the doorpost. And so I believe that the basin that captures the blood represents for us that uh, the vessel in which the blood is collected represents the preciousness of the blood of the Lamb. Now we know uh, that, uh, that there is no power in the blood of bulls and of goats, Hebrews tells us. But there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is representative for us of the preciousness of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is not to be trampled by men. It's interesting, Hebrews 10.29 says, Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. 
and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. And so we must think about the preciousness of the, the blood of Christ. The blood that is shed for us is precious blood. Why? Because it is innocent, pure, uncorrupted blood. So the hyssop is the instrument used for the application of the blood. The basin is the vessel used for the collection of the blood. But then we see here that the blood is to be uh, applied by dipping the hyssop into the the blood that's in the basin and then to strike uh, the lintel and to strike the side post. And so uh, now what does that represent for us? Well, it is the mode of entrance is under the blood. The mode of entrance is under the blood. The word here, lentil, refers to the overhang. Uh, It's referring to the upper door post. You have the side post, and the upper hanging post uh, would be the lentil. And so, uh, first, the blood was to be applied, what is first is to the lentil, to the top, and then to the two side posts. Moses instructing them in, instructed them in verse 22. He said this, And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Now, I want us to think here, if we picture what's going on here, when the lamb is slain, they are standing outside of the house. They would not be doing that inside the house. As they capture the blood, it is captured outside the house. And then as they dip the hyssop in the basin where the blood is, and they strike the lentil, and they strike the two uh, doorposts, then understand what would would happen in their minds. They would say, all right, when when we go in uh, tonight and eat the lamb with unleavened bread, when we go in, we're going in in the place where we enter and we're not to come out of that. In other words, they pass into the house under the blood. Under the blood. And so we see that uh, the, the lintel and the doorpost is the mode of entrance, and the mode of entrance is under the blood. And so we have not only the instrument that is used for the application of the blood, the vessel used for collection of the blood, but then the mode of entrance, which is under the blood. As the night would begin, I I would imagine here that uh, the the instruction here that is given to us, notice, is when you go in, uh, he says, um, notice with me verse uh, 22, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Now now why would that be so important? Well, uh, the message is judgment is coming. God is coming, and if blood is not found on your doorpost, uh, then the firstborn will be killed, but if blood is there, then the angel will pass over. And so when we think about that reference, why would then Moses say, make sure you don't leave the house until the morning? Uh, Make sure you don't step outside. I I would imagine here that as uh, uh, the death angel comes and God sees the houses where there is Uh, no blood applied, that as it is described for us in those chapters, that there's going to be a great cry, 
and there's going to be wailing in the land of Egypt. And so you can imagine there that night as the sun set and you're all ready and you've told your family and the children are asking, so are we going to be okay? And said, so, well, we followed what God has said. And so if we just apply the blood, we're coming underneath the blood. We've done everything that God has instructed us. So now we're in the house. We're safe. And then you imagine as they're sitting there, they're eating. They have their shoes ready. They're ready to leave. They're all equipped, prepared, and ready to go. And all of a sudden they hear some wailing. And then the welling gets louder and the welling gets louder and louder. And there, there might be a temptation in that moment and, and think, we need to run. God is coming for us. Lest we forget, remember that the, the reason for deliverance and for sparing the children of Israel is not ethnic. The basis of them being spared is the blood. God did not look inside the house. He looked outside the house to see if the blood was applied. And so it was not based upon merit. It was based on whether the blood had been applied. But they might think at that moment as they hear all the cry and the wailing in the land of Egypt. He's coming for us. They know as being an idolatrous people. And have... uh, fallen to the wickedness in Egypt, that they deserve the punishment of God. But yet they're to stay in the house. Why? Because it is the place where the blood has been applied. You see, as long as they are under the blood, they would be free from judgment. The destroyer would know the difference. Do we think that the destroyer would know the difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites and the strangers in the land? Of course, he could tell the difference between them. But the distinction between them was not the standard. The standard was the blood. As I mentioned here, when the children of Israel would uh, observe the Passover the next year and the next year and the next year and on and on and on, when they would observe that Passover, we all understand that every time the Passover comes, the death angel is not coming. It was a one-time event. Uh, They are to observe the Passover to remember that they've been delivered from Egyptian bondage. But the idea here that they're going to be in fear for their life that night is not going to happen but just one night. And as long as they are under the blood, it is not based upon their merit. It is not based upon their ethnicity. It is simply based on the truth that they are under the blood. And see, the fact that we are going to heaven and that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, that we are justified, is not based upon merit, is not based upon our ethnicity. It's only based upon the fact that we have been under the blood and that we are under the blood. I hope we understand that when you look at all the world around you, the wickedness of the world, the only difference between us and them is that we're under the blood and they're not. That's the only difference. Romans 5.9 says, Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. And so we uh, see as we think about not only the Lamb, but we see the blood, uh, the hyssop, the instrument used for the application of the blood, the, the basin, the vessel used for the collection of the blood, the lentils and the sidepost, the a mode of interest uh, which is under the blood. We come to verse 23 and the Bible says, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. 
interesting, it is the Lord that comes down to look. Whether the blood has been applied. And the Lord, he would say to the destroyer, what, what would he say? Well, what's, the, what's the depth here of the conversation between God and the destroyer? Not this house. They're under the blood. That would be the extent of the conversation. Not that house. They're under the blood. This house. There is no blood. And so we see here the implementation of the Passover. As we proceed in our text, we see not only the implementation of the Passover, but we see the observation of the Passover. Notice verse 24. He says, And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. Now, we don't find that reference when God speaks to Moses and Aaron and says, All right, this is what you're going to do for the observation of the Passover. But when Moses gives the instruction to the children of Israel, he's going to uh, encourage them not only on implementing the Passover, but also how to observe the Passover, not just today or this month, but they are to observe it through the generations to come. Verse 24 says, you shall, Ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance, notice, to thee and to thy sons forever. Notice here, verse 24, 25, 26, and 27. He says, Ye shall observe with uh, thy sons. Verse 25, Ye shall keep. Verse 26, What mean ye? When the children come, it says, What mean ye? What are you doing by this service? He says, Ye shall say, and so now there is a responsibility for them who are going to experience the first Passover to then pass the observation of the Passover to their sons and then to their sons' sons and to the next generations. I've already mentioned that. But isn't it interesting that when we were in the midst of the plagues, God gives us one of the reasons why He is sending the plagues. And He is sending the plagues to, uh, uh, to uh, encourage the children of Israel and to help them and to say, what I'm doing in Egypt, I want you to teach your children what I have done in Egypt. Why? Because their children and their children's children are not going to be there. They were not there during the ten plagues. They didn't see the mighty miracles and the signs that God wrought in Egypt. They did not see that. But God would do a miracle for that generation. What God is saying is, I'm not going to do the same miracles and I'm not going to give the same signs to the next generation. They're not going to see what, you've, what you have seen. But I want you to teach them. And God tells us that the teaching is just as effective as the signs. You see, if God deemed it necessary that every generation would need a sign, He would say, now you don't have to worry about teaching them. You don't have to worry about teaching your children. I'll just give them a sign, and then I'll give their children a sign. And so you don't have to worry about that. No, but God deems it fit that the, uh, the, the prescribed way that God intends is that the things that have happened in Egypt should be communicated and spoken to the next generations and on. I want to consider three truths that we learn here as we think about the observation of the Passover through the next generations. First of all, we see according to verse 24 
They are to pass the observation of the Passover to the next generation. That is a command. Included in this Passover is not that they're going to be delivered. Isn't that interesting? That uh, it's not just uh, good enough for them to say, hey, we've been delivered. We're good to go. We are free. Now, with this freedom comes a responsibility to teach the next generation. You see, we all have to recognize that whenever we speak of freedom and liberty in the Christian life or our conduct, it always means responsibility. Every time. And what is the responsibility? Hey, you're going to be free. You're going to be delivered. Teach your children. Pass what you've learned, what you've seen, what you know that God has done, and you teach the next generation's. They were to pass the observation of the Passover to the next generation. Truth must never die with us. Truth must never die with us. And we should not seek to pass along the truth to be heard. We should seek to pass along the truth so that the truth is taught. And so they were to pass the observation of the Passover to the next generation. We also see, notice verse 25... And it shall come to pass, when ye come to the land which the Lord will give you, according to Athiath promise, that ye shall keep this service. Now it's interesting here, that first of all he says, alright, it's your responsibility to pass along what you have seen and what God has done for you to the next generations forever. But then he adds something to that. He's already said pass along, but now he adds this. Now when you get to the land, make sure you do that. Well, he's already said to do that. Yes, but... Something would happen when they would get to the land. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you have to warning after warning after warning where God says, look, I brought you through uh, the Egyptian bondage. I brought you through the wilderness wanderings. And I know that it's been a difficult time and you've walked by faith, all that. I provide you manna every day and you've seen my blessing. But when you get to the land and you see the blessing of God and you build your houses and you have your lands, make sure that you do not forget God. Why? Because in the ease and the Uh, uh, the prosperity and the blessing that God would bring in their lives. He says, don't forget the Passover. Don't forget what I did in Egypt. And he says in Deuteronomy, and don't turn and say to yourself, we have done this. Don't you dare do that. So we see here that they were to guard the observation of the Passover from being forgotten or from becoming meaningless. Do you notice the word at the end of verse 25? He says, It shall come to pass when ye be come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. The word keep is you have to guard it. Protect it. You know, there are things that we have to guard and protect in our lives. The things that God has done is uh, one of those things. As I mentioned earlier in the message, sometimes we might think, and it's a mistake sometimes that parents might make, where somebody says, well, you know, I just want my children to discover God for themselves. I want them to have their own experience. Be very careful of saying that. Because it's as if that God gives you an experience, and so you just have no responsibility. You let your children go, you let them experience, and you neglect your responsibility where God says you teach them. 
You see, we may have, God may have moved in our lives and done things that maybe we, we might say, wow, that was a miracle that God, how God got in my attention in my life. But God has not necessarily designed that your children be the same, but God has designed that you be responsible to teach them and to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It is sufficient. Why would God tell you to do something that would not be sufficient? And so they were to guard the observation from being forgotten or becoming meaningless. But we also see something, verse 26, And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? Now that's a good question. What is the meaning? What's the meaning of this? What does that mean? What you're doing? Now we're talking about what? It's an ordinance. It's the feast of unleavened bread. They are to observe it every year. And so the children would see their parents do it every year, and they would naturally ask the question, why do you do this? Have you ever had your children ask you this question? Daddy, Mommy, why do we go to church? Why do we do what we do? Why, why do we go here? Why do we not go here? Well, why do we live the way we live? I hope the answer is not, well, you'll figure it out one day. The answer should be, well, let me show you. And tell you what God has done in my life. They were to communicate the meaning of the service of the Passover. Notice verse 27. He says, when they ask that question, ye shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. It's interesting, if you uh, hold your place there, go with me to chapter 13. The next uh, uh, there is a clear, that's why I'm emphasizing here the idea of, of teaching the children because he mentions it again and again in chapter 13. Notice with me Exodus 13, uh, look at verse 8. And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. Now, uh, let me uh, be very clear. Right, let's keep reading, and then I'll give the explanation before I interrupt myself here. Notice verse 9. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth, and with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. Notice verse 14. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this that thou shalt say unto him by strength? Of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of what? Bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all that openeth the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. Wow. You notice here he says you, you need to tell them what this signifies. And so next year when, you, when you're out of Egypt and you observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread and you observe the Passover and your children say, uh, say hey, what, 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 what exactly does that mean? Maybe they weren't old enough the year before to really understand what was going on, but maybe now after a year or two years or five years they've developed or you have new children coming along and they've never known what the Passover is. Uh, you've done this habitually every year, but they would ask the question, what does it mean? And he says, you're going to tell them when they ask that question that God brought us by the strength of His hand. He brought us out of Egypt. He brought us from the house of bondage. Now we know that Egypt is a... A picture of the world. 
Uh, that uh, the, uh, the, the picture of this whole passage is that it, uh, it is representative of us in our lives that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we have been uh, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have been bought by the blood of Christ. And so uh, we, uh, our children may say to us, well, why, why do you go to church? And why do you live the Christian life? And why can't we do this? And, and why do we do this? And, and why, do we go to, uh, why do we go to church so long? Uh, Daddy, why do you preach so long? All those questions, you know. Well, the length of my preaching has nothing to do with... Uh, but, you know the greatest answer and some of you who are first-generation Christians, you know what I'm talking about. Um, sometimes you may not want to talk about your past life, but I think that is one of the greatest things you can do for your children. And that's to, that is to say, look, you, you, you may, especially with children that came along after you got saved, they didn't know you when you weren't saved. And they may say, well, why do you do what you do? Why do you serve God? Why do you go to church? Why do you read the Bible in the morning? Why do you do those things? Let me tell you what God did for me. I was walking in sin. I was in bondage and a slave to sin. There was nothing good in my life. The things that I, that I would mention, I'm now ashamed of those things. But then I met Jesus Christ and I understood that He died for me and He atoned by His blood for my sin. He was my substitute on the cross of Calvary and He changed my life. And from that moment on, God brought me out of the bondage of sin and death. And so we've made decisions in our life to do certain things. Because God has brought us out of bondage. And we don't want to return. Turn with me to one more reference, Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, notice we'll begin reading here in verse 1. He says, Give ear, O my God, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them even the children which should be born who should arise and declare them to their children. Do you see what he says? God did something in Jacob and he did things by a mighty hand. He brought about great deliverance. He brought them out of bondage. Uh, but then uh, the next generation came and they're to teach that generation. They didn't see the, the miracles and the mighty hand of God. But God has given the responsibility of those parents to communicate with their words and teaching to their children what God has done and so that their children and their children's children would hear those things and remember what God has done. And lest we might think and say, well, I just think that every generation needs some type of sign. Let me encourage you with thinking about the opposite. It is the generation that was delivered out of Egyptian bondage that made the golden calf. 
signs and wonders alone are not sufficient to change the mind and the heart of those who would rebel against God. Well, how could they do that? Didn't God do the ten plagues, bring them through the ten plagues? Uh, didn't God bring them through the Passover? Didn't God open the Red Sea and they marched through dry ground? Yes, they saw those things. And yet they still rebelled against God. So to think that the generation needs a sign and that is the recipe for them to be faithful to God is not biblical at all. Jesus Christ did many wonders and signs the people do not believe. The apostles of the first centuries did many signs the people do not believe. You see, there's a greater emphasis in the Word of God on passing on the truth than there are on the signs themselves. Indeed, the Gospel in Acts, the Gospel is said at the top, and the signs are there to bear witness of the Gospel. So if the signs are so wonderful, but they're there simply to uphold the Gospel, how much greater than is the Gospel? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel itself, not the signs and the miracles, not the mighty wonders that God did, but the gospel, the message. So we see here not only the, uh, the implementation of the Passover, the observation of the Passover, and I'm done, and this is the last point, and that is the reaction to the Passover. Verse 27, notice at the end of the verse, he says this, what's the, the reaction? And the people bowed the head and worshipped. Let me, let me uh, encourage you here. The Passover has not happened yet. They have not been delivered. But when they hear what Moses say, they bow down and they worship. Verse 28, And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. Let me conclude by saying this. I think that we can find here that the people submitted to God. Right? They, they did what Moses said. They did what God commanded. They, put bo- uh, they uh, slayed the lamb. Uh, they uh, put, applied the blood on the doorposts. And uh, the angel passed over. And they were delivered. So by faith, they obey, they submitted to God's command. Uh, by the way, it's interesting, um, I didn't mention that, but I don't want to refer, but I do need to mention that, that the children of Israel who would eat leavened bread during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to be cut off from the congregation. Now understand, they're not going to die, they're supposed to be broken off from the fellowship. And that's important. Uh, those who partake in sin, as New Testament believers, we understand are not to be in fellowship. We're not to be in fellowship with. But it doesn't mean that they're not saved. Um, that's just a free thing that I know we've already dealt with the passage, but I didn't mention it. But let me finish with this. Submission here, there is submission. Uh, as we look through the Word of God, I believe that submission always has two witnesses. Submission always has two witnesses. How do we know that we are submitting ourselves to God? There's, already, there's always two witnesses. The first witness is worship. Uh, the word worship itself means to bow down. It means to prostrate oneself. That's what the word means. 
Uh, what I'm saying to us is when the Bible says worshipped, often the Bible says they worshipped, they bowed down, and they worshipped. Now why would God's word say they bowed down and they worshipped if the word worship means to bow down? I think that worship here, the word when the word worship is used, it is not just reflective of the fact that they physically bowed down, but that their hearts bowed down. They worshiped God. So it was not just a, a physical act. It was also an act of the heart where they prostrate themselves before God. And so the first witness of worship, uh, the first witness of submission is worship. You see, God, He resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Uh, we know that there are many things that God hates and they're clear in His Word. Uh, the first one is a proud look. The first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know that they are nothing without God. And so the first witness of submission is worship. Humility before God of the heart. But there is also a second witness. Because we do live in a generation that likes to talk about how they worship God. Now worship today is completely misunderstood. We might think of worship, if you actually, if you type in, don't do it, but if you Google worship, what you will find is a picture with a bunch of group who are in a rock concert who are waving their hands. And that's what worship has become in the United States of America. And it is not worship. By the way, worship is to be separated from praise. To praise is to praise. To worship is to worship. They're two different words. To worship is to be humble before God. To worship is to know that we are nothing and that God is everything. And so that is the first one. The second witness, though, is so there is the people who say, Oh, I just love to worship and to praise God. Well, are you living for God? Well, no, I just, you know, God knows my heart. Well, the greatest reflection of the heart is one's actions. You see, the first witness, while the first witness of, of, of uh, submission is worship, the second witness of submission is obedience. The people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. Twice, the Bible says. Just so you know, they, they did it. So they did it. They did it. They, they obeyed God. And so uh, what, what, what uh, provoked that? You see, uh, submission always has two witnesses. You can't say, I'm submitted to God. I'm right with God. If there's no true heart, worship, and humility before God, and if it is not coupled by the second witness, who is there to demonstrate that we are obedient to God. Is there such a thing that a heart, is there such a heart that says, oh, I'm submitted to God, I'm submitted to God, I love God, I just don't want to serve Him. There is no such thing. But we live in a generation where churches are advocating for that type of philosophy. All that matters is that you love God. By this shall all men know that you love me. 
if you keep my commandments. You can talk about all that you love God all you want. But if there is no desire to submit to Him, you do not love God. You can't say that. Many say, Lord, Lord, have we not done wonderful things in Thy name? Cast out devils and says, I never knew you. What are you talking about? And so it's important for us to look at the reaction to this Passover. They submitted to God. Why? Two witnesses. Worship, obedience. Submission to God has all, always has two witnesses. And by the way, two witnesses are always better than one. Now, is it possible to do what we're supposed to do without a heart of worship? Yeah, we can do that. That's possible. But it is impossible to truly have a heart that worships God and that same person not obey God. That's impossible. You know, when we think about, well, God has all my heart. If God has all my heart, that means He has everything. So the emphasis of God's Word is on the heart. There's no doubt. God looks on the heart. But the heart is always manifested outwardly. Always. It cannot be separated. And so that's the reaction here uh, to the Passover. I want to mention here in closing that for our lives, as we think about the summary of this text, for our lives, the focus of our lives is the Lamb, it's Christ, and it's the blood and what He did for us. There's no doubt about that. He is the reference point for all that we do in our lives. But once Christ becomes the reference point, then we come face to face with our responsibility. And the responsibility is the things that God has done for us is that we pass those along to the next generations after us and the teaching and the instructing is sufficient. But then there's an added help for us in the teaching and in the instructing of our children. That is what? Is that we have to make sure that our lives with respect to God is what it ought to be. Because ultimately, the greatest teacher is not just our words, but it is our lives. You see, these, um, uh, these children of Israel are not just saying, teach the children, teach the next generation. But then we find an example of them bowing their heads and worshiping, and then obeying. And so ultimately, we must make sure that our conduct matches what we teach. And if your conduct matches what you teach your children, then you are setting your children in the right direction. May we not be the cause of our children forsaking the Lord. Because what we teach them and what they hear in church is different from how we live our lives. And so, and may the Lord help us.